This is not the media. This is hell. Today, the violence of capitalism is imposed upon the poor in a myriad of ways globally in South Africa, like in many places. It's through control of land, commodifying every inch to dispossess the marginalized from any chance at exercising their political agency through collectively responding to the violence of the state, or having a life of subsistence absent the state. Capitalism then uses their class police to control not just those who are black, but those who are black and poor. In South Africa, the cops post-apartheid are just as violent as the white supremacist police that preceded them, which is weird, that is, until you consider the impact of U.S. culture globally and how our police shows, uh, our police programs, reinforce some of the worst racial stereotypes and even worse police tactics and violent strategies, which are glamorized in South Africa just as much as they have been here in the States. We'll talk about the violent state of capitalism both in South Africa and in the United States in a few when we talk to staff writer at Africa is a Country. William Shockey, who wrote the article, The Existing Order of Things. As the South African ruling class wages a protracted war against the poor and working class, it grows comfortable with the idea that people have more or less accepted the status quo. William's earlier article, At Africa is a Country, the Class Character of Police Violence, now appears as part of the Global Perspectives on Policing series at the Verso blog. You can follow William on Twitter at Shoki Spear, which has got to be one of the best <laughs> Twitter handles. There's a lot of good ones, though. S-H-O-K-I, his last name, and then S-P-E-A-R-E, like the end of Shakespeare, Shoki Spear. Follow Africa is a Country at Africa is a Country. And, of course, we'll wrap up this week, We do as we do most weeks, with a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff loads 16 tons. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Any plans for the weekend, Alex? Uh, yeah, probably my head throbbing <laughs> from this uh, headache that I'm on week two of. I, I figured it out. It's because my jaw is clenched 24 hours a day for a week. Yeah. And, uh, I think I might just rent out my mouth, pause, as an oil press. So if anyone has fresh olives, I could uh, probably get you some olive juice on the cheap. I had that problem. I had the TMJ problem, and I was telling you yesterday how my doctor, uh, uh, who I like as a person, not too sure how he is as a doctor, but he cured me. He just gave me Valium, and I took a Valium every night for five nights right before I went to sleep. He told me not to drink and take Valium. Yeah. And... Uh, worked i passed out every night hard i slept for eight or nine hours every night and all of a sudden my tmj went away so i suggest valium my friend if i can find some for you i will i'm uh we're going to be preparing to go on our annual family vacation which this year will have far less family as we have spread out family over three weeks on vacation this year so instead of a couple dozen people being there this year There's going to be closer to half a dozen, so the crowd is going to be about a quarter of the size, which is good for social distancing, bad because we're not seeing as much family, not seeing the littlest kids who always make the stay more fun. Good because we'll be able to relax as there won't be so much fun, if you know what I mean. Alex, uh, I have a question for you. Yeah, shoot. What did you have for breakfast? A banana. And what was your high school mascot if you had one? A dragon? (laughs) I don't want to know where this is going. (laughs) It's just so stupid. This is one of those stupid things on social media right now. So that's how you come up with your quarantine name. So, Banana Dragon. 
yesterday when I was trying to figure out what my quarantine name is and the photo that goes with the meme is something from a Mad Max video or a movie with a guy with a hockey mask on and a chainsaw. When I was trying to figure out what my quarantine name was yesterday, it was Braunschweiger Shamrock, which is like the greatest bad guy name if you want a bad guy name. Braunschweiger for, for breakfast, yeah, Chuck? Yeah, Braunschweiger on toast for breakfast. It's good food. <laughs> this week's question, Mel, is so where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is so where do you see yourself in five years? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show? This week's question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? Louis D. says, having my first drink at a bar, what do I win? Rob H. says, Elysium, (laughs) if I'm lucky. Stephen S. says, in Mexico City, wondering if I can still speak English. Jacob H. says, I'll be 27. As for whatever else, who knows? Damn, Jacob. I'm so jealous. Uh, Justin H. says, Someone will have killed me and processed my body into biofuel to power their VR headset. (laughs) Bradley R. says, Teaching Chinese to American expats. And Gorilla Gramophonics says, Huddled around a campfire in my bearskin hoodie, slow-roasting squirrels on a spit whilst regaling the youths deep in the night with fantastical tales of naked Athena's epic victory over the forces of the evil Orange One and his sidekick White Jesus. And there's somebody else playing along on ukulele. (laughs) Gorilla Gramophonics never disappoints. I really like that answer. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Immediately following yesterday's show, we got an email from Glenn, who I have no idea if they listen to the show or not. And Glenn, if you are listening, DM Alex via Twitter. Shoot us a message via Facebook. Email us because... I'm really curious if you are actually a listener or not, and you all will understand my why I'm confused about this momentarily. As Glenn writes, Hello, Chuck and Alex. I'm the media coordinator for Yana Ludwig, who is running for U.S. Senate in Wyoming. Yana is running as a socialist in one of the reddest states in the country and is a member of Wyoming's only cooperative. She is also the author of Together Resilient, Building Community in the Age of Climate Disruption, which looks at the current state of our economy and culture in relation to climate disruption. Would you be interested in having Yana as a guest on This Is Hell? She would be very happy to discuss her campaign and wider Wyoming and U.S. politics. Thank you both so much for your time. Best wishes, Glenn. Glenn and everyone listening, our pat answer to this kind of question is, No, because we do not have politicians who are in or are running for office on the show. We do not give airtime to big politics or big business because we are not the media. And that's what the media does. That's all they talk to are politicians and people from big business. And that kind of perspective is not what you get here on our show. Now, this isn't a rule. It's just a guideline. And a couple of times we have ignored it in the past, the interviews that we've had with politicians... They sucked, and I felt used. We also never have anyone from business either on the show for the same reason. They get plenty of access to the rest of the media that sucks up into their suckiness. So go on those shows. This is not the media. This is hell. We even were offered an interview with Bernie Sanders back in 2015, right around the time he announced his run for president. 
He had some book out that would make him a millionaire. But we decided quickly, I think Alex and I had a conversation about this for approximately 17 seconds, that it seemed stupid to use our limited time to promote a candidate for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. However, the original guideline was nobody from big business or big politics. So what about having a Green Party candidates or socialists or alternative party candidates on the show? We did that with some Green Party member way back in the day, maybe a few. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was in the 90s or maybe year 2000. And as I don't remember, you can tell the intense impact that conversation had on me. So we want to know from you, do you think we should have candidates for elected office on our show who are not with the two major political corporations, I mean parties, because we are getting a lot of requests from political candidates from alternative parties, and we do have guidelines, not rules, completely unwritten, as well as a history of boring, disingenuous conversations that suggest we should not have people running for office on This Is Hell. We want to know from you, should we have candidates for elected office from alternative political parties on This Is Hell? Email us, DM us via Twitter, send us a message via Facebook, and tell us what you think about us interviewing politicians either running for elected office or in elected office, but who are not running with the support of either of the two major political parties. Just all you have to do is just tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. Email us, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com or Alex at ThisIsHell.com or send us a message via Facebook, Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. Coming up on This Is Hell, the violent state of capitalism in South Africa and the United States. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at Patreon.com slash ThisIsHell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail, which is, so where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? And we will be announcing our favorite and the winner of a This Is Hell medical face mask, which are suddenly back in style. Who knew? Oh, yeah. Everybody. During the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff loads 16 tons. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. Post-apartheid South Africa, when it comes to policing, looks frighteningly like apartheid South Africa. In fact, the process of evictions also looks a lot like not much has changed. Here to tell us the state of policing and its role in capitalism, staff writer at Africa is a Country, William Shockey, wrote the article, The Existing Order of Things as the South African Ruling Class Wages a Protracted War Against the Poor and Working Class. It grows comfortable with the idea that people have more or less accepted the status quo. Welcome to This Is How, William. Thank you very much, Chuck. I'm a longtime fan of the show, and it's an honor to be here today. Wow, thank you very much. It always surprises me uh, when people actually listen to the show and that they've actually heard of the show. So thank you very much, William. I appreciate it. William's <laughs> earlier article at Africa as a Country, the class character of police violence, now appears as part of the Global Perspectives on Policing series at the Verso blog. You can follow William on Twitter at Sh- Shockey Spear, which is a great Twitter handle, and you can follow Africa is a Country at Africa is a Country. You write about the incident in late June when, quote, South Africans were up in arms after a video surfaced depicting a black man, Bulelani Kolani, being uh, violently evicted from his shack by four law enforcement officers in Kyalitsha, a large township on the uh, outskirts of Cape Town. What distinguished this moment of evictions from all the rest that South Africans are used to is that Kolani was naked and what are usually unnoticed acts of ordinary cruelty become a 
recorded episode of spectacular dehumanization. When it comes to the lack of respect shown toward the tenant, how unique is poor treatment during an eviction in South Africa? And it isn't any different now than during apartheid. So it's not unique at all. And I think something I tried to draw attention to almost immediately in the piece is precisely that point, which is to say that the indignity that was suffered by Mr. Golani, as much as it was horrific and grotesque because he was naked, if we think of the routine evictions that happen almost every day in South Africa and with increasing ferocity during the COVID-19 period, during the lockdown, it's a cruelty that is experienced by poor and working class people all the time when they are violently yanked from their homes, their homes are destroyed before their eyes, and very little effort is made by the government to relocate them to homes, and very little effort is made for them, for the, from the government to provide them with adequate structure. And in, in so doing, beginning anew the cycle of, of dispossession and the search for shelter because most of the people who are evicted from these homes in the first place only came to be in that position out of this government's failure. And once they're evicted, they have nowhere to go. They find an empty plot of land. They take ownership of that empty plot of land and decide to build a, a home there. And once again, they're evicted from their homes and the cycle begins again. And it's it's not it's not that distinct to what we've we've witnessed in in South Africa's apartheid history, and it's a point I make later in the piece, which is that it's almost like the fact that this is such a recognizable image of South African political life means that we've become so normalized to it, and the only thing which shocked us out of that entranced state was seeing an eviction happen. Um, and the peculiar fact of that eviction being that the individual was naked, um, whereas if the individual was clothed as they are in the majority of evictions which take place, it would have gone under the radar and the South African public would, would have proceeded with their lives as normal. What explains the increase in evictions during the pandemic? That would seem like a very bad public health and safety idea to make get people to be homeless to get people to be out in the street where they cannot take care of themselves in a manner that would protect others from the coronavirus. So what explains the increase in evictions during this pandemic is, is what is explaining the increase in evictions across the world. So, of course, the economic calamity, which has been exacerbated by COVID-19, but not caused by it, is especially dire for South Africa's poor and working class. So most people have lost their jobs. Most people are unable to pay their rent. And so they get kicked out of their homes. What's interesting about South Africa, just to clarify for a lot of our audiences, is that when we think of shelter in South Africa, the majority of poor and working class people won't live, for example, in a dilapidated apartment building. And this is where they get kicked out. I mean, that's the case for a lot of urban South Africans. But the majority of South Africans live in, in shanty towns and they try as much as they can to build decent housing in these shanty towns. Most of these structures are a makeshift structure of corrugated iron, uh, some brick, um, but mostly, you know, tin and wire. And 
a lot of the time, these are structures which are, you know, rented out to people. They are landlords for a lot of them. So people being in positions where they're, they're losing their jobs, the income that is flowing to their households have been threatened by the lockdown period and coronavirus in general. They, they can't afford to, to live where they have been. And so once they're, they, they no longer have places to live, um, what happens in South Africa is that a lot of people, because they can't find alternative shelter from the government or alternative shelter from charities and non-governmental organizations is also found lacking, they take it upon themselves to build homes for, them, for, for, for their needs. And so they find empty plots of land and they choose to erect makeshift structures on these empty plots of land. And, and typically communities develop in these empty plots of land because there's safety in numbers and people are, are worried about succumbing to the elements or succumbing to, to, to individuals who might want to harm them. And they become their own self-contained communities. The problem often is the case that these empty plots of land are privately owned, but what is especially peculiar about South Africa is that a lot of these plots of land are owned by the cities within which these people live. So in the case of Mr. Kolani, the plot of land, uh, which the city claims these individuals were invading, quote unquote, that's the term that's being used by the government, um, that, that land belonged to the city of Cape Town. And so the city says we need to evict people from this land because they're threatening the affordable housing projects that we want to provide to people. But these affordable housing projects never come to fruition, which is exactly why people take it upon themselves to, to organize their own shelter and to do so on land owned by the municipalities where they live. How much, was the, how much hope was there uh, when apartheid had finally ended that this kind of housing crisis would end, that the post-apartheid government would address it, that it would be the end of shantytowns? So there was a lot of hope. Uh, and in the earlier phase of the African National Congress's rule, there was a concerted effort to provide housing to the majority of South Africans. Um, there are these small sort of matchbox housing structures uh, as part of what's called the Reconstruction Development Program that were built and that did provide shelter for a lot of South Africans who didn't have access to it. But I think, and this is another thing that is mentioned in the piece, what a lot of South Africans misunderstand is they view the housing crisis as being only a problem of competent governance. So when they look at the majority of South Africans who are unable to access housing, who might have been in a position once upon a time where they could have uh, accessed their housing, but then their economic circumstances deteriorate and they no longer are able to keep housing, they look at all of that and they think this is a problem of the government. The government is failing in its responsibility to provide housing to the people and we just simply need a competent administration that can deliver these services to individuals. And I want to make it clear that I think that is true. And it's it's shocking, for example, to see the widespread corruption maladministration that has hampered the ability of the ANC government to deliver these services to people. 
But I think the other more fundamental point is that this arises because it's a fundamental feature of South Africa's political economy and South Africa's capitalism, that they need that at any single stage of South Africa's economic cycle, there's going to be a large proportion of the population that is rendered superfluous because they are, aren't, they aren't needed for capitalism's present profit-making purposes at that time. So this is, this is a fact about South African capitalism. And unless there is a restructuring of South Africa's political economy, we are always going to have an everlasting housing crisis. And it's not going to be remedied simply by trying to, to roll out these, these housing projects, because by the time you've rolled it out for a swath of the population, there is another swath of the population that falls below the poverty line, is unable to afford shelter for themselves, and then you need to roll out more shelter, and then, and then it continues um, ad infinitum. So South Africans need to think more, more critically about the nature of our political economy and system. So here in the States, when anything like this comes up, the media, mainstream establishment news media, will focus on that corruption. They'll focus on the fault in the government. And they won't mention ever any larger systemic issues. Does corruption keep people in South Africa distracted from larger systemic issues? And does the media play a role in keeping people distracted from those larger systemic issues? I think, yeah, I think partially it, it does distract people from, from these larger systemic issues. And it conceives of corruption as being a problem that only concerns governance, right, at the level of the state, and not being something that is definitive of the economic system as a whole. So when we think of, for example, the only reason there is a housing crisis as large and devastating as the one we have now is because property and land has become this commodity and this commodity upon which massive fortunes can be built by financial speculators. And as they engage in this behavior, they sort of do so teetering on the edges of the existing laws and regulations which um, govern um, how tenantship should work um, for example, and no one, no one thinks of thinks of that as being an, an instance of of corruption or or an instance where people are, are cheated out of uh, a basic human right and a basic thing that they should have in their lives. So I think it does it does function to distract people from the the larger systemic issues, and in in that way we are always trapped in this new cycle, which is just aimlessly complaining about the, the government's corruption and almost making everyone feel powerless about it because the change that needs to come is apparently so obvious, but it never happens and everyone becomes reconciled to the, to the expectation that it never will happen when we can change the conditions for the majority of South Africans. We just need to start asking in our politics, whose interests are we serving at the moment? And if we are seriously believing in a transformative vision, whose interests should we be serving?
So some might be thinking that all you have to do then is just elect new govern, govern, government into power. But you write, never mind that this land belongs to the city of Cape Town itself. This language is not so far off from what we've heard before, not just from the Democratic Alliance, the DA government, which governs the Western Cape with an expected indifference to poor black and colored South Africans. The mayor of Cape Town, also a member of the DA, shamelessly claimed Mr. Kalani's nakedness was planned so as to embarrass the city. But from the ruling African National Congress, which came to power on the hopes that it genuinely cared about the marginalized. How much has the ANC shown concern for the marginalized? And is the choice of the marginalized, is the choice of people when they go to the uh, uh, voting booth between the African National Congress that claims they are concerned for the marginalized and the Democratic uh, Alliance that doesn't? Yeah, so South Africa's political landscape, I think uh, uh, a defining feature of it is that most of the political parties on on offer don't really care about the marginalized. So the African National Congress, it has a long history and its long history in fighting apartheid is that it entered into an alliance with the South African Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions. But this was an alliance that was mostly in order to mobilize towards the popular goal of enfranchising the majority of black South Africans, but it was uh, an alliance of convenience for the African National Congress. I mean, the African National Congress by itself is a, is a complicated political formation, but it really didn't believe in the much more radical visions of social reordering that were being pushed by the Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions and merely relied on them as a route to amassing electoral victories and till this day still relies on them as a, a means of amassing electoral victories. But this hegemony that the African National Congress has is coming undone, although for the majority of people, most people still feel like the ANC is the only game in town. For the majority of South Africans, um, the Democratic Alliance isn't a viable option because it's a political party that more obviously represents a kind of right-wing libertarian vision for the country and one that is still associated with protecting the interests of South Africa's white, middle, and upper classes. Although in recent years, it tried to present itself as being a political party that cuts across race and tried to be the spokesperson of South Africa's middle classes, black and white as a whole. And then the final option really for, 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 for voters is the economic freedom fighters, which is a, is, a, is a curious political formation. It's one that weirdly has a warm reception outside of South Africa, but within South Africa, South Africans are more critical. This is a political party which sort of postures as a radical populist front, um, that claims, well, at some point claimed to want to nationalize South Africa's mines, which was viewed as being pretty radical because the mineral energies complex is the bedrock of South African capitalism from colonialism throughout today. But it was started by someone who was expelled from the African National Congress, and it really felt like it was, it was formed to express this grievance of having been excluded from the, the, the ruling party and 
its its vision for social transformation in South Africa isn't really one of trying to promote a working class politics and build a working class movement. It has very little connections to South Africa's working class, but it's it's really a kind of racial economic populist front. It wants to see it's it's upset that South Africa's economy is controlled primarily by white capitalists and it wants to indigenize South African capitalism so that it's controlled by 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 black capitalists. So it still believes in this this idea which comes from the African National Congress, which is that all you need is a patriotic black bourgeoisie in the country uh, and you need to encourage economic growth and development for them. And then all of their prosperity will trickle down to the people at the bottom of the ladder. Um, but that theory of, 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 of economic development, which you know, mo- all of these parties subscribe to in some form, has been thoroughly discredited um, by the 26 years of, 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 of democracy that we've had. And no one comes to this realization in the political class. What explains the attractiveness of the economic freedom fighters to people who are not within South Africa, to observers outside of South Africa? When What explains that disconnect between that attractiveness to outsiders and people who live in South Africa and their unwillingness to be so quickly to embrace this organization? Yeah, I think it's because the well, for, I, th- I think a lot of South Africans were initially attracted to them for a similar reason, which is that they have this very militant posture. They speak in very grandiose, radical language. And so it, 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 in looking at the economic freedom fighters and how they conduct their, their, their politics and their public presence, it's not hard to see them and sort of recall the, the images of revolutionary movements which have become the 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 defining image of when people think of of post-colonial africa so they they officially identify as a marxist leninist uh fanonian um, political formation as well as you know sankarist they throw that in there uh, some of the time and it's not hard as a as i think as an outsider you look at that and Maybe there's not as much of an appreciation of the 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 dynamics, particular dynamics of South Africa's political landscape, and it's easy to view them as being a a, a progressive social force in South Africa's political landscape today. But I think for South Africans, we're intimately aware of how the Economic Freedom Front fighters, as well, are uh, also corrupt. They've been embroiled in a number of scandals. Their top brass have engaged in sort of accumulation ventures to fill their own pockets. They're completely disconnected from social movements which are representative of South Africa's working class today. And they they are are kind of more represent they're a more organic representation rather, I should say, of of downwardly mobile um black middle-class South Africans, particularly young black South Africans. So it's sort of, I guess, in, you know, in, in, an, in an era where, uh, I guess, the, the, the easiest way to understand politics now, which is a simplistic way, but just to give maybe um, an analog when we think of you know, identity politics as, as overtaking class politics, I think the, the economic freedom fighters has been the South African instance of that, where they use racialized identity 
as a way of presenting themselves as radical, um, but really offering nothing radical as far as uh, a transformative economic program for the majority. So that sounds like the kind of thing that outside media would fall for. Uh, You write the uh, story of colonialism and apartheid as the story of the dispossession of black people from their land and eviction from their homes. It's a story that remained unchanged in plot, shifting only its storytellers. Who or what is the colonial power that threatens poor South Africa, marginalized South Africans today? Because people would argue colonialism is over. Apartheid has ended. There is no occupying force or no minority rule going on. So who is the colonial power? What is the colonial power that threatens South Africans today? I think the, that's a that's a very interesting question. And it's one that's difficult to answer. I mean, I'd, I'd say that the the colonial power that threatens South Africa today is, I guess, uh, global domestic and global financial capital. So um, the, the South African ruling class, as, as expressed by the African National Congress, is still wedded to an accumulation strategy that seeks to appease global financial capital uh, and that global financial capital really knows no nationality, whether it's American, whether it's Chinese, uh, whether it's large South African South African businesses, which are are also extremely um, have a, a massive foothold on on the African continent. Um, so it's 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 that um, the, that the, the the colonial you know the, there was a bunch of there were a bunch of um, you know, Marxists who wrote in during apartheid South Africa, and they they spoke of the South African situation and said that what the South African situation demonstrates is that our version of capitalism is 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 in in being colonial represents the highest version of the highest form of capitalism, and I think that's that's still true t- till this day. Even if there is no um, colonial domination. The fact that the capitalist relations remain intact, uh, I think, means that the, the the colonial relations or the colonial institutional forms um, remain intact as well. You write that the legitimacy of evictions in South Africa uh, then becomes strictly a technical matter, whether they are lawful or unlawful, whether those carrying them out act reasonably or not. Once again, what seems to matter is that you have the legal authority to conduct the eviction and that the eviction happens in a way consistent with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The apartheid regime thrived on this kind of mystification of obscuring unequal power relations in the guise of an instrumental rationality, which makes us concerned with the proper processes of things and not what ends they are serving. But as we now understand, this isn't exceptional to apartheid. It is how capitalism functions. We started this week talking to the former foreign minister of Ecuador under the Democratic Socialist President, Rafael Correa, who is currently being blocked for to running for uh, president through what is called lawfare, a process of manipulating local laws, often by outsiders like the U.S., to affect the law in a way that changes the leadership of government. As the U.S. worked with the far right to oust Presidents Lula and Dilma and push into office the far right Jair Bolsonaro, the lawfare that Prince, uh, Pope Francis actually condemned. While that is a unique manipul- uh, manipulation of the law, to what extent do you think that lawfare is another expression of how 
capitalism functions, to have the legal authority to enforce unequal power relations between the rich and the poor. Is lawfare all that unique when it comes to how capitalism operates? No, I, I mean, I don't think so. Uh, I think you've given really stellar examples of how lawfare, initially something that is often a tactic of progressives and radicals, ends up being a tactic that defends unjust and unequal social orders. Uh, and I think that's, that, is, that is the function of, of, of capitalism. I mean, the, the very institution of, of property and contractual relations are entrenched by the, by the law and they're, they're, they're coded by the law. So I think that's, of course, that's, that's a, 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 a process that, that is in, in the, the very sort of fundamental fabric of, of capitalism. And in, in South Africa, it's, it's interesting because this is something that I think is a, is a caution that a, a lot of people make. And it's a caution that I, I allude to in the piece, which is that the South African case is interesting because lawfare has been a tactic that has been wielded by progressive social movements and one that has delivered an enormous amount of gains for those social movements. But the consequence of lawfare in South Africa so far has less been to be weaponized by nefarious forces, but rather to sort of um, to sort of prevent the development of of working class forces in South Africa, in the sense that um, politics is replaced by judicial battles, right? Uh, class actions uh, overtake and replace class warfare. So it has this demobilizing effect when I think the, the rush to go to court either to enforce the, the government to fulfill its obligations or to enforce some corporation to stop treating a group of people in some harmful way has, effect, has, has a demobilizing effect. And, and that demobilizing effect only undermines our chances of building a political movement that can that can threaten those those capitalist social relations, which we take opposition to. Um, so I think it's yeah I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in in your characterization at the beginning about how lawfare is something that we should be skeptical of, and I think we should be skeptical of it even when it can be can be a, a force for good in society. You write that contrary to the Freedom Charter, which declared 65 years ago this past June that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, it doesn't, but more importantly, it can't. Why can't, why can't South Africa belong to all the people who live within it? Is it a fault of the charter or is it a bigger problem beyond any charter? So it's not so much a, a fault of the charter or a bigger problem of the charter, but rather draws attention to how the aspiration of the charter was a fundamental transformation of what it meant to be in South Africa and what it meant for South Africa to be a place that could belong to all. The charter as an aspirational document wasn't simply conceiving of liberation for South African people, the majority of whom are black and the majority of whom are working class, as meaning a transfer of power from 
the minority, white South Africans, to the majority. That's not how it conceived of liberation. It conceived of liberation as consisting in social and economic emancipation as well, in creating a social order in which people not only belong to the political community that they live in, but also can exercise democratic control and ownership of the resources of that community, have a say in the management of the economy of that community. And this democratic control is not simply something that we understand as being political representation, but it really is the ability to control your life in every sphere within which you engage in that society. So when I say South Africa can't belong to all in living it, what I mean by that is that South Africa as we know it is not the South Africa as conceived by the Freedom Charter. There is a discrepancy over there. Um, and uh, unless and until we transform South Africa so that it can match the aspiration of the Freedom Charter, then the Freedom Charter remains unrealized. It's speaking about a South Africa that doesn't exist, but a South Africa that we have to make and a South Africa we should strive for. We are spe- speaking with William Shockey, he's staff writer at Africa is a Country, and we're going to talk to him now about uh, his earlier article at Africa is a Country, The Class Character of Police Violence, which now appears as part of the Global Perspectives on Policing series. At the Verso blog, you write that America's lasting cultural hegemony means that South Africans routinely import a distinctively American sensibility when it comes to understanding police violence at home, one with anti-black racism at its center. How much does the U.S. export to South Africa and the rest of the world, anti-black policing with our media that reinforces that anti-black policing. Does U.S. culture normalize anti-black policing globally? So I'm not not sure if it it normalizes uh, anti-black policing globally um, so much as it sort of, I guess, the, the, the... the lasting cultural influence of America, to just say what my piece said, makes it sometimes difficult, not in all cases for sure, but in the South African case, makes it difficult to understand the dynamics that shape the the nature of police repression and brutality in those countries. So I guess the point being in the piece that South Africa's policing definitely has this racialized element which is for sure uh, a holdover of the fact that our policing institutions were forged during colonialism, they were passed over to the apartheid period, and they were inherited by the post-apartheid government and remained fundamentally unchanged despite all attempts to try and give them uh, a new look and a new focus and a new way of operation. So there's definitely this, this racialized element but something that gets overlooked in how we understand policing in South Africa being primarily through an American lens. And this was obviously written in the context of of George Floyd. And it was written in the context of there also being a, a long history of police violence in South Africa that up until that point had remained not really spoken of in, in, in political discourse. And what was overlooked was the fact that there's also, as the piece is called, the class character to police repression and drawing attention to how we aren't really going to 
to, to change policing and more than that, envision a world where policing isn't there to begin with if we neglect to analyze how class is an important factor that causes a lot of the police repression and brutality that is witnessed here in South Africa. And yeah, indeed, as in the world as a whole. One of the things that you point out, and I thought I found really interesting, is that you write on the flip side, poor and working class black South Africans have more in common with their American counterparts, black, white, or Latino, than they do with the middle or upper stratas in either country. Indeed, through their shared experiences of economic oppression and state repression, they have more in common with their counterparts in Kenya or India, where police crackdowns during lockdown have not been dissimilar to those here, but are unreported, underreported still. In Palestine, where Israeli apartheid uh, continues to broaden, or even France where it wasn't long ago that the police violently oppressed the yellow vests. So is is U.S. African-American culture a culture for the rich elite in South Africa and disconnected from the poor? I think, I think yeah, I think one could say that um, because it's, it's, I mean, the reason it's, it's appealing in the first place for a lot of people is because of what it represents, which is upward social mobility and financial prosperity for a lot of people. That's what it represents. And that is uh, a reality or a possibility that is out of reach for the majority of South Africans. And I think that's how, yeah, US American, African American culture ended just representing sort of the the cultural ambitions of, of the middle class of entrenching itself as being in a position of, of cultural leadership um, locally and to the scale that uh, American African-American culture has, which is internationally. So it, it finds very little, I mean, of course, a lot of it filters throughout society, but it doesn't find as much resonance to the majority of black South Africans. I think a case in point example to mention quickly is the very, very warm reception that Beyonce's new film, Black is King, is receiving here, which is, there's a lot of critiques to mention about it, but which is this film, which kind of, I haven't seen it, I have to say, uh, I have to admit, but from what I can gather, it sort of recalls this image of, a, of an unblemished, sort of prosperous, pre-colonial past that existed in South Africa and says that, well, or not South Africa, but rather Africa as a whole, and says that this is, this is what black people should aspire to. And that's, that's a film that a lot of people are, are finding that speaks to them and speaks to their hopes and, and aspirations. But it doesn't speak to the hopes and aspirations of ordinary South Africans. Um, and, and I think that's just an, an example of, of, of how this influence becomes a way of fashioning some kind of, of, of international black community abstracted from circumstance and, and history that, that has a universal interest. And this universal interest being portrayed as one of, of, of aspiring to, to prosperity and, and wealth and, and cultural, cultural leadership. But in, in sort of erecting that aspect, erecting that that image um, is one that neglects the, the material conditions, realities, and and interests of ordinary people in 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 South Africa, in, in Africa, and and the global South. 
How much has the COVID-19 pandemic revealed to South Africans that not enough has changed since the end of apartheid? How is that the thing that it has revealed the most to South Africans, that we still have white supremacist cops, even if they're acting like white supremacist cops, even if they're not white? I'm not sure. I don't think I don't think it's 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 difficult. I think there's there's a there's a there's a widespread understanding. I think there's a widespread ability to register the fact that not much has changed. But when it comes to understanding why not much has changed, I think that this is something that a lot of South Africans are on are unable to assess and apprehend, which continues to ensure that that very little changes, um, which is to, to make the point that people need to to just understand that the the struggle that remains for for South Africans today to 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 sort of um, evoke Fanon when he says each generation must discover its historical mission um, in relative obscurity, uh, fulfill it or or abandon it. To paraphrase it, I'm, I'm butchering it. But when we think of when we think of that, you know, when we think of what does South Africa needs to do today to move forward and to deliver justice and equality for the majority of its people, the reason why we still have social relations from apartheid and colonialism persisting till today is not because of our political structure being racialized, but it's because of our political economy being unchanged and remaining racialized and remaining oppressive of the poor and working class. And if we, until we are able to register our problems and the scale of our problems as arising fundamentally due to the structure of South Africa's political economy, then the nature of social relations in South Africa are going to persist because they are being sustained by our political economy uh, rather than simply being a matter of 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 racial uh, subjugation and disenfranchisement as it was during during apartheid and i think that's what a lot of south africans are unable to come to terms with and for a lot of south africans they will be unwilling to come to terms with because this political economy as much as it doesn't work for the majority of south african people still works for some south african people and they have an interest in it continuing to work for them. One last question for you, William. We've been speaking with staff writer at Africa as a Country, William Shockey, who wrote the article, The Existing Order of Things. His earlier writing at Africa as a Country, the class character of police violence, now appears as part of the Global Perspectives on Policing series at the Verso blog. You can follow William on Twitter at Shockey Spear, S-H-O-K-I-S-P-E-A-R-E. And you can follow Africa is a Country at Africa's a Country. Africa's a country. No I in there. One last question for you, William. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I thought that this, uh, that when I would ask this question, it would take you about three hours to answer it. But unfortunately, I think that you just touched on a lot of it in your last answer. So my question from hell for you is, William, why didn't apartheid end racism in South Africa? <laughs> It didn't, it, it didn't end racism in South Africa because we need to understand racism less as being this liberal conception of racism, which is interpersonal discrimination between 
a group of individuals at some place, whether it's a school or a corporation or wherever it is. But we need to understand racism as being the subjugation of, of groups of people on, on the basis of, of, of race and, and racializing them in order to subjugate them, but also, and, but, you know, primarily also on the basis of, of class. And we, so apartheid could not end racism because we understood racism as simply being black people not having the vote and not racism as being black people also, the majority of black people living below the poverty line, black people being unable to access shelter, black people unable to go to decent schools, black people unable to secure food for themselves. Uh, until we accept and confront that racism has an economic dimension and is not only oppression based on the color of your skin, but a function of demarcating the color of your skin is also to oppress you economically, then racism will persist in South Africa because the majority of black South Africans will live in deprivation, poverty, desperation, and abject misery. William, I have enjoyed this conversation greatly. We are going to be bugging you. I'd love to have you as one of our regular contributors on our show. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I truly appreciate it, William. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Chuck. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I wish the same to you. All right, take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time as podcast at the same place shortly after this week on Patreon. I mentioned how the building where I live was not receiving any mail, but we were receiving packages that were not being delivered by the post office. Unfortunately, those packages were being stolen by what, unfortunately, are referred to as porch pirates here in Chicago. Hat tip to Eric, who this week suggested that we use, instead of the somehow oddly racist, offensive porch pirates, a term Eric coined is alcove a-holes, which is closer to the truth as they are not stealing stuff from our porch, but what could be called an alcove, although I like vestibule villains and foyer... F- uh, I'll stop. But I'll be uh, telling you about catching the person who was ransacking our packages and taking what they please on tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Also on Patreon, we are sharing our July 20, 2008 interview with writer and editor Kai Wright, who is the author of Drifting Toward Love, Black, Brown, Gay, and Coming of Age on the Streets of New York. He was on to talk about a couple of articles he had just posted back in 2008. One was called America's AIDS Apartheid, and the other, The Subprime Swindle. But you can only hear that on Patreon tomorrow if you subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber, not only do you get This Is Hell Subvertising stickers, a special secret code that gives you five bucks off all merchandise, but like I said, you get access to all of our past Patreon-only podcasts. Coming up during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin will load 16 tons. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. Oh, damn, I do. Hold on a second. I was ready to do Quest from Hell. Oh. So, one second. Sorry. Let me pull up his drop. One second. Everybody. All right, that's okay. I just wanted to get you out of here faster, dude. So, yeah, there you go.
back on my 16 tons. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Reading the journals of others, I'm always struck by the way their strengths in one area make up for weaknesses in another. I wasn't interested in the majestic mountain ranges, but the old volumes in the village's small library held me in their thrall, or my brother's studies of the classic works of Linnaeus held no interest for me. I lived for the rush of wind as I shushed down the berg, or I never could get the hang of archery. No, for me, all joy burst forth from the sea as I landed a fish for supper. I could never do that memoir shtick. For one thing, I'm too dishonest. And for another, for every weakness of mine, instead of a strength in another area making up for it, there's an additional weakness. For example, I never liked other kids much, and they didn't like me, but at least I had some science fiction to read, which bored me a little less, but was small consolation for a lonely life as child pariah. Oh, blah, 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 Jeffrey, who wants to listen to you read your creative writing assignment? I had a boss who used to complain about people's creative writing assignments being read on NPR. That was the only good thing about my boss. See, I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up a shovel and I went to the mine. I hauled 16 tons of number nine coal and the straw boss said, well, bless my soul. That's one thing I like to pretend that I worked in the mines, that I had one fist of iron and the other of steel, the getting another day older and deeper in debt part, well, that I don't have to imagine. That happened this morning, as it does every morning. Yep, that's why I voted for Trump, because he said he was going to open the mines back up, bring coal back. Not because I'm racist. I mean, I am racist, but let's be honest, Obama made it hard not to be racist with his audacity to be black and president at the same time, presiding while black, defying the laws of white physics. And white people invented physics, and don't you forget it. I mean, can you imagine a bunch of black people achieving a fake moon landing? They'd never get that hoax off the ground. You know why? Because their Jesus doesn't have German science on his side. It's also not because I hate Hillary. I mean, I hate her, but she's asking for it. Now, let me... Step out of redneck character for a second, not that it was a particularly well-drawn character. I, me Jeff Dorchin, do hate Hillary, because she is full of grade B horseshit. But unlike my redneck character a paragraph back, I didn't vote for Trump, I voted for Hillary, because bad as Hillary is, Trump was exponentially worse. I mean, I said at the time, the last thing we need is someone who studied at the knee of Henry Kissinger and is considered by libs and conservatives alike, neoliberals in other words, and so considers herself, an expert on foreign policy. I mean, she's certainly an expert on the kind that's messed up the world for your average earthling, but Dump thinks he's an expert on everything. He thinks he has natural ability or something. It's my mind. It's such a good mind. It's not a good mind. It's a very diseased mind. But the kind of society we've put up with for so long, paved the way for this loaf of Dunning-Kruger manure to sit in the captain's chair. Anyway, Dump brought the overt incompetence, racism, misogyny, disregard for humans and other earthlings, disregard for the whole earth itself, but he didn't bring the coal back. He had one job, according to my racist persona, and he couldn't get it done. 
No, as slowly as it's going, as ass backwards as it often seems to be sliding, the world is trending toward renewable energy and sustainability, even the markets. It's the reliance on markets that's retarded the pace of progress, and is why we'll probably not get it done in time to save thousands of species and our own civilization from going extinct. But the trend is there. Like every collective effort to do good on a broad scale, it's too little too late. But it is heading in the right direction, more or less. Why, just last week, Caltrans, the California Transportation Something, announced it's testing a new recycled plastic paving material. One mile of this material will incorporate 150,000 plastic bottles. It's going to happen out on Highway 162. They're going to scrape off about three inches of a thousand feet of messed up highway, grind it up, and instead of mixing it with tar made from leftover bitumen, waste usually trucked in from an oil refinery, and you know, there aren't as many of those left as there used to be, instead of tar, they'll mix it with a binder made from melted plastic beverage containers. Number one, pet plastic, the most commonly recycled plastic in the world, and actually in high demand already, but... They'll probably retool eventually to use number three, four, and five plastic. Give them time, <laughs> like we have time, like we have all the time in the world. We'll probably be turning a lot of highways into farmland as we leave behind the personal automobile in favor of highly efficient, beautiful, comfortable mass transportation. Maybe Caltrans will get back aboard the bullet train train. They can pick up right where they gave up like pathetic losers. But I'm not here to beat up on Caltrans or California development policy or the inefficiency and destructive priorities of markets or Donald Dump and his racist supporters. I'm here to deliver good news. I'm here to strip the world down to its underwear, turn its ratty old clothes inside out, and show you all the silver lining. Maybe it's a good thing that the USA is lagged behind every other developed nation in almost every facet of material public policy. Once we slog through this reactionary period and start catching up to the rest of the contemporary world, assuming the contemporary world can adapt to what's required to maintain itself through this reactionary period, we'll be able to learn from all the trial and error implementation all the other countries have done before us and reap the benefits of the technologies they'll have developed. Mississippi just posted the highest per capita number of the highest per capita number of corona deaths in the known world. Nice work, Mississippi. Goddamn. Maybe a large swath of the reactionary U.S. public, along with much of the progressive public, I'm sure, will have been thinned out by the time we're ready to become a halfway decent society, and no one, or only a few easily picked off hard cases, will stand in the way of the new socialist leisure, public works, and integrated lounging program. Because once we've miraculously turned all the at-large plastic into building materials, once that ambitious young man who invented the ocean plastic cleaner is ready to retire his fleet, and even the oceanic gyres are gone, well, that is how I, President me, Jeff Dorchin, or maybe I'll go with President Yosefus, that is how I will bring back mining to the USA. We'll pick up our shovels and we'll go to the landfills, Ride the elevator down, it'll probably be a short escalator actually, and start picking into the compacted cells to get at that sweet, sweet plastic. 
We can even use the plastic layer that lines the cells because we'll have stripped away all the toxins that might contaminate the soil and groundwater, and we'll tote those bales of unrecycled, recyclable plastic from veins of number one, three, four, and five, no direct relation to number nine coal. Plastics, young Benjamin, it's the future. And that is how the American dream of having a cruddy, schleppy job for an honest day's pay will return to these flogged and bloody shores. You'll have to put up with a lot of relaxation, a lot of downtime, because we will have 100% employment. So that means certain capitalistic priorities will be deprioritized and most likely decapitated. My goal as agitating blabbermouth and president in training is that we as a species avoid at all cost the future predicted in the movie WALL-E. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. A reference to the graduate and WALL-E in one monologue. Congratulations. Oh my God. You didn't, you probably, you know, there's a, this is, for for all the nerds out there, this is going to be a really exciting one to pick apart. <laughs> all right, Jeffy. <laughs> Alex has got to get the hell out of here. So okay, hey, I got a suggestion for his jaw problem. What's that? Chill out, man. Don't be so uptight. <laughs> all right, stay beautiful, sir. You too. Bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Alex, do you have the rest of the answers to this week's question, Mel? Which is, so where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, yeah, I do. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? Chris L. says, Thunderdome. Eric T. says, either having been helicoptered by the Cotton Administration or working in one of their freedom camps, which are part of the special free enterprise zone. Eric T. says, Alex doing his best macho man Randy Savage impression, which is not going to happen. <laughs> no, that is not going to happen. Holding that belt high above my triumphant head, expect the unexpected in the kingdom of madness. Joshua L. says, in a Zoom meeting. Where do you see yourself in five years? Justin M. says, where do I see myself in five years? Are you serious? What kind of question is that? What useless motivational book did you boys grab this from? You think I need this mask, you bootlicking suit fillers? I've got better things to do than answer condescending, mind-numbingly asinine queries from a couple of nobodies sitting in their makeshift studio atop the local... You know what? I'll tell you where, you, where I'll be. I'll be halfway through my good time on a double homicide bid, assuming you two have the stones to meet me outside. Wear those masks, though. <laughs> so we were just threatened with a homicide. That's all right. I'm fine with that. Uh, Bradley A. says... It's not the first time that's happened in my life. <laughs> Bradley A. said, have you had multiple people threaten to kill you before, Chuck? Yeah. And it was before this radio show and then afterwards. I would save that for the Patreon table, I think. <laughs> Krimsky K. says, I see dead people. Bradley A. says, I will drink coffee at the Eiffel Tower. Fashionable woman with a delicate face. That's my wife's answer. English is her third language. Translation, should be in a romantic city and show no signs of aging. Oh. And finally, uh, via Twitter and DM, Yee Hoke says, In a courtroom as the second Biden hologram administration is putting all leftists on trial for being anarchists and making sectarian jokes like how anarchists are cooler than communists, which actually doesn't help the situation but allows me to continue to S-post, since Twitter will be shut down by the first Biden hologram after four years of people demanding the police actually be defunded and not hollow promises about training, a mistrial will be declared after a juror laughs at one of my bad jokes, which only makes my co-defendants irate because I won't stop dunking on their organization's terrible socialist newspaper from the stand. Wow. It's very specific. <laughs> uh, hypocrite reader, our friends, say, still toiling away in the discourse mines. <laughs> I thought that would be automated by then. St. <laughs> Ham YOLO says, where do I see myself in five years? 
on the up and up after my vote for Biden and the blue wave relieve property rate and racism and hand out a bottle of Pepsi to military slash police forces. A couple more. Jacob J says kicking it with the other Jacob J in our slightly worse world. And Gidden says ain't anything changed. Hell's still getting hotter. Hasn't frozen over yet. Hanging tough with Beelzebub and Brigade. I like hypocrite readers answer. I also liked Steve answering in one of the hastily dug mass graves already inundated with seawater, which was Alex's favorite. I thought Tyler saying yelping refugee camps was Very good spectacular. Too. Dan saying sitting in my same house but five miles closer to the beach thanks to sea level rise. That's good. Alan saying mining lithium in the asteroid belt for uh, Elon Musk. MG, though, I got to tell you, I don't know why this really got me. So, MG, you're the winner of this week's question from hell because you replied to the question, so where do you see yourself in five years? MG says... I'll be 40, which is invisible for a woman. So, (laughs) I just really like that. I don't know why. I thought that was great. MG, you have won this week's question from hell with your response, I'll be 40, which is invisible for a woman. So, there you go. You have won a This Is Hell medical face mask. If you are not today's winner, you can still get your This Is Hell medical face mask, which now come in three different varieties. There's a white one. There's a black one. There's a white one with trim. You can find all of them right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. My answer to this week's question from hell. So where do you see yourself in five years? Probably at the doctor's office a lot more, as we'll all likely need booster after booster to fight this pandemic and the next virus that will be released from what were frozen lands due to a warming planet experiencing climate change. So yeah, in five years, I see me waiting in waiting rooms and reading a lot more out-of-date magazines and medical pamphlets about disorders I don't have. We want to thank everyone for sending in your answers this week, and we want to thank everybody who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. And that includes special thanks to Kurt O. and Lee H. for going to thisishell.com and showing your support for This Is Hell by clicking on support. Alex, who's on the show next week? Uh, Still working on Monday. I'm trying to find the perfect uh, report on what's going on with the USPS. A lot of stuff is Trump deranged, so I want to get into sort of a bigger story of what's been happening in the post office in the last 10 20 years uh, but something's going to happen on that so well, that'll be monday someone talking about the post office and then on tuesday at 10 o'clock david broder will be back on i've been looking forward to this book for like a year now i know uh first they took rome how the populist right conquered italy uh, then on wednesday uh, edward onachi will be on to talk about his book from unc press Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa, and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. Sweet. And then on Thursday, Jeff. Still working on it, and Jeffy. We start every week by giving you this week's Hangover Cure, and this week's Hangover Cure is blueberries. We want to thank all of this week's guests, Guillaume Long, who is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent under the Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa. Most recently, he served as Ecuador's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva. He talked to us about the slow-motion coup that's taken place in Ecuador with the assistance of the United States. Also, thanks to feminist economist, artist, and activist Cassie Thornton, author of The Hologram Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. Alex posted the website for The Hologram at our Facebook page, so you can find it there. Thanks to Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law for returning to This Is Hell, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. Finally, thanks to today's guest staff writer at Africa as a Country, William Shockey. 
Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2008 interview with Kai Wright on AIDS, apartheid in the United States, and the housing swindle that stole black wealth. And I'll be telling you what happened when I caught the person who was stealing packages from our building. I started today by telling you that uh, my quarantine name is Braunschweiger Shamrock because that's what I had for breakfast yesterday and my high school team mascot. My girlfriend's quarantine name is Cream Cheese Trojan. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.